0: This is Dialogue with Draken Dabu. My name is Emma Drake. And my name
1: is Sweta Debu. This is the podcast where we talk about all things policy, politics, and pop culture. For, st- for today's episode, we will be learning about homelessness on PEI. Unlike our previous episodes, however, we won't be focusing on particular policies, but rather learning from an on-the-ground perspective and how different policies affect the situation on PEI right now. According
0: to the federal government's Reaching Home, Canada's Homelessness Strategy Directives, homelessness is defined as, and I quote, homelessness is a situation of an individual or family who does not have a permanent address or residence. The living situation of an individual or family who does not have stable, permanent, appropriate housing or the immediate prospect means inability of acquiring it. It is often the result of what are known as systemic and societal barriers. And this includes a lack of affordable and appropriate housing, the individual slash household's financial, mental, cognitive and behavioral or physical challenges and or racism and discrimination. Looking
1: at definitions from the federal government, there's also a specific definition pertaining to chronic homelessness. Here, this refers to individuals who are currently experiencing homelessness, and meet at least one of the following criteria. The first one, they have a total of at least six months or 180 days of homelessness over one year. And two, they have recurrent experiences of homelessness over the past three years with a cumulative duration
0: of at least 18 months or 546 days. Recently, in January 2021, the Canada Mortgage and Housing Commission released its annual report and it stated that the vacancy rate in PEI was 2.6%, which, albeit higher than 2019, was also accompanied by a 3.8% increase in rental prices. This is actually above the maximum allowed rent increase by the Island Regulatory Appeals Commission, also known as IRAC. Since 2014, Vacancy rates of PEI have decreased by extremely low numbers, making access to housing of any kind challenging to secure for anyone.
1: As if being homeless in a housing crisis was not difficult enough, with COVID-19 narratives have changed to stay at home and avoid spreading the disease. Homelessness is now putting people in situations that are more vulnerable than ever. Within PEI, advocates have been raising awareness on homelessness and unsafe locations people have to resort to in order to seek shelter. Also coming in the news more and more is the intersection between homelessness and harm reduction. To chat with us today about homelessness on PEI is Pug Mom, pickle enthusiast, mental health and homelessness frontline worker, and our very, very good friend, Sarah McCackern. Sarah, thank you so much for being with us today and chatting with us about homelessness on PEI. Just to kick us off, our first question, how are you?
2: Uh, Well, first, thank you both for having me. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so it's (laughs) a little bit um, special to be your guest for the week. I'm (laughs) very excited about that. Um, All in all, I'm doing well. It's a lovely kind of calm evening, feeling prepared for the week, prepared for a busy week and and had a really great weekend with some great friends so i'm feeling pretty good oh well now i feel
0: special and i hope sweated (laughs) does too because we were (laughs) part of that um just so listeners know uh sarah is actually one of our most attentive and loyal listeners uh sarah i don't think you've missed an episode correct
2: me if i'm wrong there I don't think so, unless there's one that I did miss and I don't recognize it, but I am almost certain. I listen to it every Monday. It's like a a routine at this point.
0: (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm blushing. That's what we like to hear. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much again, Sarah. I know you've been mentioned on the podcast a number of different times, whether that be stories or whether that be you know your role working in mental health and homelessness so it's a real treat for us to have you on it but also uh, for listeners as well so to jump right into our first question how would you describe
2: homelessness um so this is a a tricky question to answer because i think that there's so many parts that need to be looked at when you look at like one single word of homelessness um but essentially the easy way to define it is just the absence of having somewhere to live so not having somewhere to call your own um i think it's important to recognize obviously when we talk about homelessness that it looks different for everyone everyone Mm -hmm. kind of has their own story um and typically in in the sense when i worked for housing first we divided it into three categories so three categories types of homelessness um the first one being imminently so that would kind of be like an uncontrollable situation, and emergencies happen. You currently have nowhere to live. Um, that's the first category. Second is episodically. So that would be someone who perhaps experiences homelessness in periods of time. And that would be looked at logistically like three times a year. And then on the more severe end, we have chronically. So chronically homeless being um, for six plus months at a time or for four times or four kind of periods of time over the course of a year. Mm. Um, So like I said, it looks different for everyone. We always like to make a note that homelessness doesn't just mean kind of staying in shelters. A large Mm. percentage of people that are homeless are like blindly homeless, um, which essentially typically looks like someone couch surfing or someone staying at a friend's place. Um, or even sometimes roughly like 15% of people who experience homeless are actually somewhere in the system. So whether that be in, in jails or um, prisons or in the hospital or at a treatment mm-hmm. facility. Um, mm-hmm. And typically, you know, case plans hope to um, find housing for someone after they leave those, those facilities, but sometimes that's not the way it works out. Um, but yeah, there's lots of different definitions. So lots of ways you can look at it. I guess it's it's just important to make sure we we don't try and put one certain view on it Mm. and I know when I talk to people a lot especially on PEI about homelessness it's a lot of like well are they at the emergency shelter are they sleeping outside and those are kind of the only two options that people (laughs) would think of when they think (laughs) of homelessness but realistically like 30-35 percent of people are staying somewhere else they're not staying in a shelter they're not sleeping outside they're like i said kind of couch surfing or staying with a friend or or somewhere in a system or beyond any of those ideas that i just threw out and mm. it's a big definition it carries a lot of meaning and it carries a lot of different stories so hard to sum up in in you know one webster's dictionary definition <laughs>
1: Absolutely. And thank you so much for providing this comprehensive definition, because mm. I know oftentimes even, you know, when trying to visualize homelessness, you're not necessarily thinking of people in the system or of people couch surfing. So that was a really, you know, important and necessary perspective for us to have as well. Now, mm. talking about homelessness on PEI, what services do you know that currently exists for homeless people?
2: Um, well, there's, there's quite a list. Um, there's, I guess, different ways we can look at it. So primarily we look at emergency shelters. When we think homelessness, we think where are people sleeping, if not outside. Um, so there are, there are a few shelters in town and I kind of mentioned, I'm not overly familiar with the shelters that exist outside of Charlottetown because my role primarily focuses on the population in Charlottetown, but Mm -hmm. I know in town, there are um, two men's shelters, which are Deacon House, which is provincially run, and Bedford McDonald House, which is run by the Salvation Army. Um, And for women, there's Blooming House, which is an emergency shelter. Um, Anderson House exists, um, not so much an emergency shelter, but still a really great resource. Um, And There are a few transitional housing buildings, so things like um, Lacey House for women, um, transitional housing that just opened at Smith Lodge for, for men. Um, So there's a few of those types of options, but in terms of emergency shelters, there are eight beds that exist for women at Blooming House, um, six at Deacon House, and eight at Bedford McDonald. Mm. So It it kind of like leans more towards men, which Mm -hmm. isn't always reflective of the homelessness population. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm. Those are the primary kind of emergency services. Um, other programs exist, such as the Outreach Centre, and we'll touch on that, I know, in a, in a little bit, so I won't go too far in depth. Um, but there's also a lot of really great programs that exist on PEI, um, one being Housing First, which is a really great program run through Canadian Mental Health that um, I did work for over the summer, and it was very, very eye-opening. Mm-hmm. Um, Housing First exists essentially to, to help people experiencing chronicle or um, episodically homeless people to get them off the street as fast as possible and help them find safe and secure housing and mm-hmm. um, whether it be you know a, a motel room that they can rent monthly or something like that and and periodically try and move them up to somewhere that that is more safe and and stable primarily oh, wow. uh, the john howard society of pei does some really great programs and um, the native council a lot of the population a large population percentage of the population and um, that we see primarily at the outreach center is actually indigenous so having the native council um there to provide some housing resources is really big too um, and then there's subsidized housing which I'm not overly familiar with so I won't get into too much detail but I do know um, as we've heard probably many times before that one being you know really hard to get into really long wait lists. so I I quite honestly don't even consider that an option for homelessness, and mm-hmm. um, I would primarily look at those emergency shelters I listed, the outreach center, and then those external programs as well, and those nonprofits that do a lot of great work.
0: Hmm. Wow, that's awesome! Mm-hmm. And again, I think similar to what Sweta had said earlier, really comprehensive look at uh, what current services exist. Like I think that breakdown on a kind of you know bed per service location breakdown is really beneficial for listeners to have an idea of you know okay this is what exists you know and as well the differences in emergency and transitional and and things like this for listeners Sarah is a very modest person oftentimes she will preface answers with you know I don't know a whole lot or um, you know only in my experience but she's extremely knowledgeable I think as demonstrated in the last number of questions so Um, You never give yourself enough credit, Sarah, but very, very knowledgeable in your field. So one thing that's really interesting about your expertise is that you've been an employee at the Outreach Center since its inception, which was in January of 2020, which is hard to believe because I remember it opening and thinking, oh my goodness, wow, this is so exciting. And now a year has passed. And of course the challenges with COVID and continuing to run and moving locations. So -hmm. we have two questions for you on this one. The first one is, how did this service come to be? And then the second one is, what role do you feel it plays in supporting homeless people in Charlottetown?
2: Right. So back in what would have been December or November of 2019, um, a group of different organizations, and now what we call stakeholders in the outreach center, identified a need or a gap in the system for essentially a daytime place for anyone who's homeless to go when shelters aren't open. Um, The typical hours of shelters, they open at 8 p.m. and they Mm -hmm. close at 8 a.m. That's 12 hours during the day that people that were staying in shelters really had nowhere to go. So when this group of people originally met and they identified that need, they said, well, hey, let's open something from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. every day. Mm -hmm. It'll act as a warming center and it'll act as kind of a one-stop shop for all of these different service providers to help hook people up to different services that they require. Mm -hmm. So that the original idea was that it was to be a warming center. It was to be open those 12 hours. People could go stay warm, grab a cup of coffee, Mm -hmm. but as well kind of have that one-stop shop for all of the service providers involved. To perhaps connect to their services, learn about them, match them up when necessary, um, and over time, that that evolved. It turned into something different. And obviously, when it was launched um, back in in January of 2020, we we had no idea what 2020 was to bring. Um, <laughs> no <laughs> kidding. All of these worldly changes. The. <laughs> had to evolve to become something more than just a warming center. Um, So it's been really cool for me to see from January 2020 to January 2021 how those changes have looked and how they've been um, uptaken by the clients that we see. Um, We've also gotten to follow some clients from January to January. So we've seen them for a whole year. We've watched their progression. There's been a lot of positive stories come out of it. Um, That's awesome. mm Another thing worth noting too, kind of on the good news end of, of things, is that when the average center was kind of designed as an idea, the launch to actually open it was incredibly fast. <laughs> probably happened over a month and a half, and that they secured a location, they hired employees, they launched it, they went, they were on the ground running. It was a really, really quick project. Um, and January was the perfect time to open it. January is kind of when it starts to get really snowy and really gross outside. Um, and honestly, with COVID have happening or have had happened in March, um, we were really only open for three months running a, a wow. COVID you know, outreach center. So um, it's really a blessing in disguise, I guess, that it did open in January and that in March when... Other places were closed and shelters were still closed during the day and no one could go to Tim's or no one could go to the library and sit around. We still had the outreach center. We were able to offer that service throughout the pandemic. There wasn't one day that we closed. Um, Holy cow. Not one day. Not one day. Holy cow. 365 days. That's however long it's been. (laughs) (laughs) Give or take. (laughs) Um, We've extended our hours a few nights during hurricanes. We've been able to pull through um but like i was mentioning the need and the the purpose has really evolved it started at that as that warming center with those service providers coming in and now it's become something that that people you know are excited to go to there's programming happening we're we're now offering a ged course so any clients that don't have wow. Their oh wow can come and get it um we've got computers we've got more service providers coming in daily we've got you know, consistent staff. We've got all these wonderful donations coming in that PEI kind of pulled together. So a lot of the clients have built this this really special relationship in that they know if they need anything, Mm -hmm. we can find it. We can put a call out. One of the staff maybe has one. Mm -hmm. Um, We can connect them to services. We've gained a really great relationship with all of the service providers that do come in and Uh, external service providers that perhaps don't come in, we've made a connection with them. Mm -hmm. And So being able to connect our clients to to where they need to go. And just to touch and and perhaps clarify on um, what I mean by service providers and and who those folks are. um, I mentioned at the beginning that committee, those stakeholders that we talked about that originally Mm -hmm. kind of conceived Mm -hmm. this idea are essentially just a group of people um, from different nonprofits, from different government departments. Um CMHA has a seat, John Howard, Peers Alliance, Native Council. Um all these different groups have have come together and put this idea together and have since followed it. So the committee meets, they they determine what they need. Um and then they send employees in. So for four hour slots during the week, um, a representative from John Howard will come in and help people um, create a resume or file their taxes yes. <laughs> or something <laughs> like that. And similarly with Canadian mental health and um, the housing programs come in with the clients. And um, the provincial mental health and addictions team will often come in for four hour slots, which is really great to have like a clinical side of things. We've had some UPEI nursing students do placements there, mm. which has been really great to have, again, like a clinical side to have someone with that type of experience. So mm. it's been really neat to see it evolve from this, this like pilot project back <laughs> in 2020 with, with like no direction. Um, and no like true clear idea on where we were going to be in January 2021. So it's, it's really exciting. And there's a lot of good work, you know, being done there that that PEI should be proud of.
0: <laughs>
1: mm. Wow, well, that's so cool. And I had no idea that that's how quickly that the outreach center came to open like a month and a half. That's almost inconceivable when you're thinking when you're used to kind of seeing democracy uh, sorry bureaucracy and seeing things take ages to come to light so Mm -hmm. that was super exciting and you know it's also incredible to see how much the outreach center has grown over this year because wow that's I had no idea about you know the full scope of operations there Mm -hmm. now when Emma and I were kind of preparing for this episode or other episodes, we always like to, you know, find some background data and some have some background information on of how things are on the ground. But um, I think we had a little bit of trouble finding, you know, official statistics with regards to homelessness on PEI. So, you know, you probably have a better idea than us, given that you're one of the people who works, you know, with homelessness every day. So how do you how would you say is homelessness tracked on PEI? Um, well, Swara,
2: that's, a great question, because I'm not really 100% sure um, <laughs> in the year that I've spent working at the outreach center, I have yet to come up with an answer for that, um, based on the research that I have done and that we've been trying to kind of compile for our own um, information. There was a report done in 2015 by the John Howard Society, um, which was federally funded and expected to run again in April of 2020. Um, and obviously with the pandemic that that count never happened so there is no official tracking right now that is happening and typically the shelters independently track how many people are staying per night and how long they're staying and those types of things but in terms of like provincial data I'm not sure what that looks like
0: Mm. and that's challenging too when although there have been reports done And, you know, previously by the federal government, by way of John Howard Society in Mm -hmm. 2015, you said, you know, it's hard to adapt services to the needs of of 2021. Mm -hmm. And especially as many services are, are funded by the provincial government, you know, a key and I know we talk your ear off about this all the time is, You know the best way to create meaningful and valuable programs or services or policies is to have that up-to-date data so um, hopefully that's something that that does take place in the future shifting gears a little bit and i know this is something that we've chatted about a number of different times uh, definitely a bit more informally than this Mm -hmm. um, but is the relationship between um, safe injection sites and as well um, homelessness on pei so for listeners, on Wednesday, January 27th, uh, the nonprofit organization Peers Alliance presented to the Legislative Committee on Health and Social Development, and this was on the need for safe injection sites of PEI. Furthermore, in a CBC interview, Charlottetown Police Chief Paul Smith spoke in favor of safe injection sites, stating that, quote, at the end of the day, it's just part of a broader harm reduction strategy to go forward, end quote. So Sarah, how would you say safe injection sites impact PEI's homeless
2: population and the services that they access? Hmm. And this is a great question. There's a huge correlation between homelessness and um, drug use on PEI. Um, And as I've mentioned many times before in more informal conversations, I am so grateful for Peers Alliance and and Hmm. the do in terms of advocating for these safe injection sites and um, being a frontline worker. And I'm sure that any employee of any shelter or the outreach center on PEI would tell you um, safe injection sites are incredibly needed. Um, especially when we look at following different types of harm reduction policies or implementing harm reduction policies um, safe injection sites are a perfect demonstrator uh, of harm reduction and how that that looks when you begin to try to implement them. Mm -hmm. um you know harm reduction understanding that that people are going to use drugs and that that's going to happen so at least trying to make it as safe as we can and make sure that they have um what they need to be able to do it safely and and create that relationship harm reduction approaches create such a trusting relationship between clients and and staff employee volunteer Mm -hmm. um, that then can help you know build conversations and build conversations about um resources that exist and getting help that perhaps they may not have ever um, heard of or thought of or realized that that they could access.
0: Mm.
2: And so I had kind of three points on when I think of safe injection sites in in relation to the outreach center. Um, number one, currently, there's not really a huge formal way to track overdoses on PEI. Mm. There wow. is some way to track them. Um, but as staff at the outreach center, we have not really yet found found out what this is um and being someone who has administered naloxone to someone in an overdose there was no follow-up wow. there's no follow-up Paramedics that were at the call or the police that were at the call and um, so knowing that that these are happening and, and there's no real tracking system and um, a safe injection site would likely be able to track that a little bit better so that, you know, we can, we can look at those statistics and actually understand what drug use looks like on PEI. And um, because Absolutely. it's a lot more common than I think people realize. Mm-hmm. Um, second, one of the bigger um, services that we offer at the outreach center that peers Alliance provides us are safe injection kits, which are essentially just brown bags full of um, clean needles and, and clean supplies to inject drugs. And, mm-hmm. um, And there's a huge demand for these. We go through um, probably 30 or 40 a week. Wow. Um, Holy cow. And I think that alone demonstrates the need for for safe services and for somewhere safe to be able to inject Mm -hmm. um, or use drugs. Um, As well as the the constant complaints from the public that people are finding needles in public. And when we look at public safety, what that looks like. As well as it's a really common occurrence, even in the outreach center and having those clean needles provided for needle disposal boxes or sharp disposal boxes to be um, broken open or cut wow. open. Um, and you'll see that in a lot of public bathrooms too. Mm-hmm. You may notice that. Um, so a huge demand in that sense. And then three looking more proactively, um, safe injection sites, hire trained staff to be able to recognize an overdose, um, recognize infections and be able to properly measure out doses of drugs and be able to advise on those types of things. Um, whereas we as the outreach center through experience have learned a lot of these things. We are not necessarily officially trained. Right. Right. Having that sense of, of staff trust, I guess, in a safe injection site um, would be a huge benefit. Um, and like I said, in a proactive sense, a lot of the reasons we send people to hospital um, typically are from drug use or injection use. So whether that be an, an infection at the, the, the site of the use, um, an overdose, uh, uh, anything like that, um, being able to proactively look at that and be like, hey, if you do it that way, um, it's likely that you'll get an infection or hey, that, that may be a little bit too much for you to inject. Let's start with a smaller dose. Those types of things that we can't offer, um, but a safe injection site could um could be a really proactive approach in decreasing the amount of hospital admissions you actually see
0: wow yeah (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and just to clarify for listeners and then i know sweta has the next question um the outreach center is not a safe injection site Mm -hmm. the staff do not receive training for safe injection services um Mm -hmm. and currently each of the different shelters on pei and correct me if I'm wrong here, Sarah.
2: Um, there are no substance use allowed. Correct. Right. So, typically, shelter and outreach staff are trained in how to use naloxone and how to recognize an overdose for emergency situations. Yes. But we are not a safe injection site. You are not allowed to um, use drugs on the property. There is, you know, no punitive measures if you are caught doing so. Mm-hmm. We're obviously unhappy that someone's doing it in a safe location Mm. but like you said Emma we're not we're not trained to be able to react appropriately to that and and Mm -hmm. the majority of the shelters in in Charlottetown allow no drug paraphernalia so no bongs no no needles nothing like that Mm -hmm. and it doesn't demonstrate that harm reduction approach that I that I mentioned earlier Mm -hmm.
0: absolutely and
1: you know just thinking to the amount of things you would have had to learn and learn how to deal with over the past year—that's absolutely—I'm just incredulous at the thought of it. And you know how I wouldn't say easily, but that there exists a solution on how to help people in a very safe manner, and that that isn't happening right now. So, yeah, you've given us a lot to think about. Uh, but you know, as a frontline person who's working directly with PEI's homeless population. Um, I know you've touched in a little bit about how you have to be camp free in shelters, but what do you feel are the current barriers that shelters on PEI face? And because this is a public policy podcast, we have to also ask you, what are some <laughs> solutions that you feel would address these problems?
2: <laughs> right. <laughs> so, I think this will be a bit of a long-winded answer. Um, That's okay. Because I think that there are a lot of barriers that exist. And if you've ever Heard me go on a rant about the barriers that exist getting into shelters on PEI. Mm-hmm. You'll have you'll you'll know well that it can be a long-winded rant. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the ones that we see, and I'm I'm thinking of myself, you know, working 7:30 p.m. getting ready to kind of close the outreach center for 8 p.m. and making sure that everyone has a bed and has somewhere to stay. Um, so when I think of that, there's a few primary barriers that come into play. And um, the first one, and I wrote some notes here. The first one I wrote down on my notes is, is the distance and how um, it can be difficult to travel to shelters. There's currently only one that exists in the downtown, downtown core,
0: mm-hmm. um, which is
2: Bedford McDonald House, um, which is typically one of the easier ones to travel to because it is right downtown. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, you know, people will, will hang out downtown or they're at the outreach center, so it's not too far of a walk. Mm-hmm. Um, Blooming House, the women's shelter is a little bit further out mm-hmm. um, but they actually provide taxis um, so the women that are going to blooming house have a chance to catch two taxis either leaving at 4 p.m or 8 p.m mm-hmm. um which is which is huge it, it eliminates that need for them to try and find their own way out there um, it eliminates the need to try and travel when um, things are feeling gross or, or walk a fair distance um, but when we look at deacon house for for the men's emergency shelter which is provincially um, run there's no actual transportation service mm. um, and if you're not aware deacon house lies in the property of hillsborough hospital which is um out by the qeh which is a fair distance from the downtown core mm. um, and this has proven to be one of the more difficult um, services to access and typically why um why i'm sometimes late at work because we're trying to find ways for people to get out to deacon house at at 7 p.m or 8 p.m and there's there's no bus route and walking that distance in the rain or the snow is is really hard <laughs> um, and not often very accessible for a lot of people um, so typically i know in in this sense a lot of us at the outreach center have have paid personally for cabs to go out to DK wow. because yeah. it's it's difficult to to get anyone out there and um, so that's definitely one really large barrier that exists and like i said Blooming house in bed for McDonald's, um, are in the right direction because they are quite accessible in that sense. Deacon House, not so ever, not so much. Um, second, just some like physical needs. I wrote down, um, a lot of them require you to have an ID. Mm-hmm. So if someone doesn't have an ID or a health card, um, perhaps on their person or at all, because we mm-hmm. often see a lot of people that don't have IDs, um, sometimes they're turned away. Oftentimes an ID is necessary, but when you don't have an ID, um, that becomes an issue. Other things such as like medication. Um, sometimes shelters will ask if you're currently taking the medis- medication that you're prescribed. And if you're not taking it, they don't allow you to come in because they would assume that you're perhaps unstable or wow. not following doctor's orders. Um, that's been a really tricky one to navigate, especially if someone's been prescribed medication for a few months but hasn't yet started it. And in order to get into the shelter, they need to start it. Um, and often medication for mental illness is is difficult when you're first starting. So
0: that's right, yeah.
2: That one's been tricky. Um there's also very limited options. <laughs> um, so sometimes people, you know, get get banned or get kicked out for weeks at a time from different shelters and not having another option to go to has proved to be really tricky. Mm. Um, even if you know someone's been it, it we see it a lot where they're they're kicked out for a couple nights at a time or for three or four nights or a weekend or a week. Um, there's not really another option, especially for women, Blooming House is the only option. and for men, you've got Deacon or Bedford. Um, so that's been tricky to try and navigate that and um, even if you've had a like a bad experience, um, or if a particular place kind of triggers some type of trauma mm. um, this one I see a lot in women if blooming house perhaps resembles um, a particularly hard evening for someone um, or perhaps they've stayed there before and have a really negative experience they don't have another option um, women in town don't have another option of somewhere to go
0: mm.
2: so if that bad experience perhaps is, is barricading someone from being able to go it's, it's frustrating. It's frustrating for the women to know that it's their own minds kind of stopping them, but knowing that there's not another option. Mm-hmm. Um, there's different rules at every shelter. Um, all of those kind of things that I just listed in terms of like IDs and medications and, um, uh, bands look different at every shelter, certain ones, you know, you don't need to have ID in certain ones. You don't need to have medication in certain ones. Um, will accept you back if you apologize like different things like that there's absolutely oh, wow. between different shelters so it's really really tricky to navigate like i yeah. said that's seven thirty, kind of 8 p.m time to try and figure out what would be the best fit for someone mm-hmm. um there's very little communication between shelters so if something's perhaps happened um or someone needs something or something's going on there's very little communication that happens um, and in certain cases, sometimes two people just get turned away. Sometimes there's not enough beds. Um, it's full. It's at capacity. Um, they get turned away because you know their name isn't um, isn't one that they've accepted in the past. Mm. Mm-hmm. Lots of different um, barriers that exist, and that's kind of just touching on a, on a few of them that I see really commonly at the end of the night. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I wrote out kind of like a list of solutions to go beside all those barriers that that would help, <laughs> you know, and again, I speak from my own experience working at the outreach center, trying to find people beds. That is, that is what I'm basing all of this off of. Um, so one would be better communication, um, better, you know, communication between shelters, between service providers, um, between the staff at each, Um better I wrote I literally wrote better design shelters I don't even know what that means at this point just better that's okay (laughs) I think I wrote this and I looked at Blooming House Blooming House is the perfect example of a well-run shelter Mm -hmm. um they have wonderful staff they've got amazing staff they've got like I talked about this transportation this um, harm reduction approach they they use restorative justice justice measures um they're kind of top-notch PEI shelter and I love working with them always been wonderful Mm -hmm. um so I think when I when I wrote that note I was hoping that all shelters on PEI would just be Blooming House like just look like Blooming House (laughs) in the way that they're Um, run. and they even hire like a caseworker to look at each individual client and try and connect them to services which none of the other shelters really do Um, and Bedford is currently in the process of implementing a case manager okay which is really exciting yeah and um, adequately trained staff so making sure that the staff that are working at at each shelter or each location um are trained well in in all of the trainings that you can need and I think kind of um, like assist suicide intervention um nonviolent crisis intervention and, um, you know even just in terms of like vocabulary using appropriate vocabulary with yeah um. Mm-hmm. I wrote <laughs> harm reduction implementation, which is more than just writing harm reduction right into your policy. It's actually mm-hmm. kind of writing what that looks like, what that looks like when you see um, perhaps like a bong or a different drug paraphernalia coming into your shelter, doesn't mean confiscating it. It doesn't mean, you know, keeping it locked up or taking it away from someone. And um, it would mean, you know, letting them use it safely when they need to. Mm-hmm. So looking at restorative justice and how that can play out when uh, perhaps someone has broken rule or perhaps someone has done something that's not appropriate. Um, looking at more of like a a, a safer way to, to help someone understand what they did wrong. Um, oftentimes you take the most punitive approach and that would be their their harshest consequence. But trying to look at other ways to do help people make better decisions. Mm. I guess it's all word that. I kind of mentioned just like consistent policies throughout different emergency shelters. Um, I tried to do some research before jumping on here and I could not find any type of emergency shelter policy through the provincial government. Um, so not sure that that one exists or if it does exist, what that looks like because there's not really any consistency happening right. in different places. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for all this. I know you mentioned kind of before you started answering the question that, you know, you go on rants about homelessness and that the barriers that shelters face, but I speak for myself and I think I know I speak for Emma as well when I say we've learned so much from each one of those rants, like every single time there's some new piece of information that we didn't previously know. And yeah, you should give yourself a lot more credit. And, you know, you've raised a lot of very good points, but I think one that has really stuck with me when you were talking is the lack of accessibility in getting to those shelters and like, be it through their location or be it through lack of transportation. Because we are right now in a global pandemic and having to figure out if you're taking a cab to a shelter or how many people you're sharing that cab with who you don't necessarily interact with on a regular basis, that poses so many additional health risks in addition To uh, homelessness, that I don't know, that's the one thing that I've been thinking about a lot for the last five, 10 minutes. Mm
2: -hmm. And I would like to make it known too that the only shelter that doesn't offer transportation is the only shelter that is provincially run. Oh, wow.
0: Fascinating. Okay. Mm -hmm. Wow. Again, sir, I totally agree with what Sueda said. I, I know sometimes you say, oh, I don't want to go on a rant. I don't want to bore you. But it's really fascinating. And I think oftentimes in not just PEI, but, you know, internationally, homelessness is oftentimes, you know, taboo, or it's not talked about as open as, you know, education policy or these more type positive, you know, mm-hmm. things. And so, when we do have an opportunity to learn about homelessness, it's fascinating because, and again, particularly your experience with working on the ground, you know, all day, every day, every week, and especially since the inception of the Outreach Center, and the first of its kind as a, as a, a warming center throughout the day on PEI, has provided such an insightful Look at, you know, what does homelessness look like, you know, particularly in Charlottetown. Mm -hmm. And I think too, oftentimes, you know, I know you've said this before, like, oh, I don't know a whole lot or "I'm, I'm not a policy person, but I think this episode and your experience just goes to show like I think everyone has such an expertise and a lived experience and that's not to be downplayed and if anything, it it should be empowered and, you know, this is an opportunity to talk about such an important topic like homelessness and then also, you know, plug in your expertise and lived experience directly into ameliorating policy because I think that's the only way that you can make it better is when it's coming from that on the ground experience. So anyways... Love the rants. Keep them coming. <laughs> really appreciative. To you,
2: like, you two doing this this podcast on policy is not something I would ever typically listen to because, as I've mentioned, policy is not my gig. It's not what I'm best <laughs> at. not what I understand at all. But listening to you two talk about it every week with someone who has a passion about something really helps other people recognize, I think, that you don't need to be an expert in policy to understand what needs to happen Mm. Um, and as someone who grew up not even understanding I think what the the word policy meant starting to kind of shift that view from you know frontline workers are appreciated and their opinions are valid and their experiences are valid Mm -hmm. is really helpful for anyone who's ever been and or anyone who's ever had that feeling of like invalidation
0: yeah
2: it's really really helpful in that sense so I appreciate the work that you two do (laughs)
0: Well, it wouldn't be possible without weekly <laughs> listeners such as yourself. So <laughs> we will transition on that very positive note. As you know, as a weekly listener, this is the point in the podcast where things become very serious.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: This is the point when we transition into our weekly podcast beer panel. So for new listeners, for folks who tuned in simply to listen to Sarah, which if I wasn't on this podcast, I would also just tune in simply to listen and to learn from Sarah. (laughs) What the beer panel is, is every week, and of course, Sweta too, I shouldn't exclude her. She's on the podcast every week. So (laughs) there's always that. Many different opportunities to listen to her and learn from her as well. But beer panel, every week, we mention a beer I will say for listeners such as Sarah who have been listening along, we tried to do Dry January. Admittedly, now everyone's (laughs) laughing. Admittedly, it wasn't 100% success. But that is okay. And I've actually listened to a number of different interviews recently with folks who are doing dry February for breast cancer uh, fundraising is actually they've shifted it from dry February, like 100% to setting your own goal, understanding that, you know, quitting cold turkey isn't necessarily um, an option for everyone or may not be, um, you know, the best solution or, or way to navigate that that month. So setting a goal that makes sense for you. So I use that as my own, uh, my own uh, excuse for January. It wasn't 100% completion with the dry piece, but it was a significant decrease. And like everything, it's in moderation. Now, after this long rant, Sarah, I'm going to pass it over to you. What would you, as our special, special guest, like to share
2: for the beer panel? Well, when I think of winter, and I think of January or colder seasons, one of my favorite go-to beers is the Black Tie Affair Stout by Upstreet. Yes. And I can't quite remember if that's been mentioned here yet or not, but if it hasn't been, I hate stouts typically. <laughs> <laughs> not my but when I hear cranberry and vanilla in a beer, it sounds so good. So mm. I think I tried it for the first time a couple of years ago, but now it has become my go-to beer when I am at an Upstreet location. Um, very like warm and cozy feelings in that beer. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan, I'm a big fan. Plus the the logo design is beautiful. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Wow. Incredible. Uh, Emma's giving me a look, so I guess I'll go next. Uh, to be honest, it's been a little bit more of a wine January than beer January for me this year for some reason, which I don't know, I feel like I should start accepting my new status as a wine mom at this point. Like it's, no, it's you- not new. Nile. Uh, but uh, but yeah if I had to recommend a beer I think just a classic ruby social from upstreet as well um it's usually my go-to um very easy to drink it's got like the rhubarb notes and yeah I really enjoy it uh, regardless of season be it summer or winter so the ruby social is my recommendation this week mm.
2: love a good ruby social very mm. safe bet very yeah, that's a
0: good way to put it. Mm-hmm. It definitely is. Mm-hmm. I do like that one a lot. Um, This week, I'm going to bring back um probably one I've mentioned at least two or three times already, but that's okay. It ties into another thing I'd like to mention. So I'm going to recommend the Vic Park. Um, Of course, this is from um PEI Brew Co it is delicious it's my favorite 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 beer of all time um it's just fun it's sour it's got a punch very delicious and the reason why I'd like to bring it up is because I had the opportunity to share a Vic Park not share obviously with COVID um share within the presence a uh, physical presence of Sarah and Sweeta on Friday evening when we had the opportunity to to attend Mark's Lounge for the official launch of It Slips Away, the newest single from our official music provider Mm -hmm. to the podcast, Mr. Shane Pendergast. So he just launched that single, it's awesome. I told him at the show, I said, Shane, I listened to this song like 10 times on repeat today. It's just, it's that good. I don't know, do we also have commentary on that? Not just a beer panel, now it's a Shane Mm -hmm. Pendergast new music panel.
1: I find that a lot of Shane's music, in a very good way, gives me like very strong nostalgia vibes, as uh, one of my good friends, uh, one of our good friends would say it, it reminds me of growing up on a farm in West Virginia, even though I was born in a town and grew up in a town uh, my entire life, so... Yeah, it's always like really nice nostalgia vibes and I know I was telling this to Emma while we were listening to Shane's music is that having that music and then being at Mark's lounge at the same time made me feel like I was in an indie movie and it was just that scene of self reflection where you know you're nearing the end and like that's when everything is hitting so very very much would recommend uh the song and just in case uh, folks want to catch him live shane will be back at mark's lounge on february 12th and 30th from 9 p.m to 12 p.m
2: there you go sarah do you have anything to add mm, i like what's point on nostalgia because every time i hear shane's voice or shane's music it takes me back to summer of 2020 which although wasn't um a fantastic summer. It was amazing in my own eyes. We got a lot of um, great memories in, but Shane's music kind of took over the playlists for summer 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I heard Shane sing his new song, I had played it on Spotify the morning it came out. It took me back. I felt like I was in July and it was really nice, <laughs> um, but a beautiful song, a beautiful song to be released in, in January, which which isn't summer, but it's January and it's mm-hmm. a great song. So. Mm-hmm. And we're that much closer
0: to the summertime Mm -hmm. but we will enjoy the winter while it's here but on that note sarah it's been a slice To have you on the podcast finally in person. I think I think the buildup has been there, really. Like I think we've mentioned you in at least half of the episodes. And this oftentimes makes some of our other friends jealous, but that's okay. And um, anyways, it's it's been an absolute delight and an honor to have you on the show. Mm -hmm. Again, your expertise and knowledge is is incredible. And it was awesome to be
2: able to showcase that to our listeners. So thank you. Thank you so much for for having me and for, for listening and for helping to get the word out on on homelessness. It's been a hot topic as of lately. So being able to, to provide my insight to it has been really exciting for, for me and for all the staff at the Outreach Center really to, to express our gratitude and thanks to, to PEI for being mm-hmm. very helpful and wonderful at times. So. Sarah, if folks would like to follow along with
0: the outreach center, are there any areas in which they can perhaps look them up on social media or contact them? Anything like that? I will admit we do
2: have a great Facebook page. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But we do have a Facebook page. If you just search community outreach center, it should come up. Um, We'll post different activities that we're doing. We post the needs lists that we require as donations every so often. Um, We post a lot of good news stories, too. So it's really encouraging when we do get new followers to that page. So definitely check it out. Awesome.
0: It
1: is an incredible page. I can vouch for that as well. And on that lovely note from Sarah, this brings us to the end of our episode. Thank you so much for following along, everyone. Thanks so much for being our guest, Sarah. I hope everybody is staying warm and staying safe. This has
0: been Dialogue.